Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is our text this afternoon. Would you join me, please, as we stand to read what thus says the Lord from this text. Song Solomon chapter 2. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so the verbiage may sound a bit contemporary, but you should still be able to catch the meaning even in your own translation. Chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. Like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. We often engage in a sacred space in worship and we almost miss the essence of what it's saying, particularly through the lyrics of a song, because we merely spiritualize the spirit that's being spoken through the song. However, I want to highlight something that took place this morning. If you caught the spirit and the essence of what was being sung, there is something about the song that challenges us to take a moment to reflect upon the intimacy of the moment. The intimacy being that we're taken to a space in a euphoric sense that we don't experience on the regular sense. We're taken up almost like Paul's language in the second Corinthians letter that I was taken to the third heaven and I saw something I had never seen before. Taken into that space of the eternities in which his mind and his body and spirit enters into a realm of celebration and worship that he had never experienced before, at least he doesn't tell us in his writing. But he did so to the Corinthians that they may understand that their spirituality is not superficial. But it yet is supernatural that takes place on the inside of them. I asked the male course to sing that song a second time because I wanted to make sure that I was satisfied in my heart what the song was saying to my heart. And that was that we have got to understand the glory 
of entering to his courts with praise and thanksgiving. That song, comparatively to the text of second chapter with Song of Solomon, in the first seven verses, sounds like to me a celebration from the loved who's being loved by the lover. Such a celebration that when they enter into that space of intimacy, no one is allowed to enter in but the two that's engaged. It's so special that when one begins to think about how worthy the lover's love is and how worthy the lover is to be honored, this is where we find the woman in the text. She is excited, excited about who she's in love with because who she's in love with has made her excited about being in love. I want to raise the question, are you really excited about being in love with God? See, that doesn't sound very convincing to me. Because when you're in love with God, or when you're in love with someone, just the mention of their name drives a certain sense of enthusiasm out of us. Have you noticed in church somebody got to pull your enthusiasm out when we talk about God? When we talk about how good God is and how kind God is and how loving God is and how providing God is and how protective God is and how complimentary God is, someone actually has to pull that out of us for us to respond with a hallelujah or amen or thank you God or something has to strike us to remind us of how worthy God truly is. But that's not the picture I get in the second chapter of the Song of Solomon. I don't get that picture because it seems to me she's excited based on the compliment she's heard from her lover. He says some stuff to her that changed her whole mentality and changed her whole mindset and attitude and that reoriented how she would carry herself so that those who talked about her in a downward perspective in chapter one, we see her in the opening language of chapter two talking about herself from an entire different perspective. She sees herself now not as her brother saw her in verse six of chapter one, but she sees herself now as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. The compliments that he has paid to her now inspires her to see herself as a rose in the Sharon. And then the Sharon is the landscape in which the roses grow. And isn't it amazing how she is able to pick herself out, out of the landscape and identify herself as the rose of the Sharon. And then as the lily of the valley. Now the valley would be a vast amount of landscape 
and yet she's able to see herself in the midst of all of the women in the landscape. She calls herself a special lily in the valley. All because the lover has said to the love that not only are you special, but in verse 1, he says to her that uh, in verse 2, she is the darling of my heart and she is the lily among the thistles. In other words, girl, you so fine and sweet and gorgeous to me that no matter what I see out there, I can always see you in the midst of the landscape. And I saw that as God saying to me that no matter how you go and no matter how far you go even away from me and no matter what context you engage yourself in, I can always still see me in you and I can find you out there in the valley because you are the rose in the Sharon and you are the lily in the valley. What we get out of chapter one is this. We find that the king praises the bride, but then we find that the bride is praising the king. And isn't that just how the relationship works between you and I and God, that when God adores us by being his children, we in return celebrate him by being his children. That's the reason why I kept asking him, keep singing, worthy is the lamb or worthy is he to be praised because when we think about the provision of God's completeness of who he is and when we think about the caring that God provided for us and if we remind ourselves to rewind the tape periodically and go back to where God found us when we didn't have compliments that encourage us. When we weren't receiving the endurement that allowed us to see who we were in him. And then when we met Christ, something changed on the inside of us. Grandmama say, I looked at my hands and they looked new. It's as if when I came into the space to celebrate God, when God took me by the hand, something happened to my whole being. My hands started to look new. And then if I took my head and moved it downward, I saw my feet and they did too. Because God not only changed where I would touch, but he changed where I would walk. And that's why she is now able to say, I'm the rose of Sharon and I'm the lily of the valley. Because when God comes into your life he changes how you're gonna walk he changes how you're gonna think he changes how your mentality is gonna be no more slouch shoulders over no more downward looking about my life no more thinking with the self-pity no more thinking with self-destructive ideas but when I have the mind of Christ I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when I have the mind of Christ I know that God shall supply all my needs when I I have the mind of Christ greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world when I have the mind of Christ I know that God changes my life changes my mind so when I come to worship and all I have to do in fact 
before I even get to worship, I just start thinking about the goodness of God and I start passing the trees and I start passing the grass and I start looking at the weather and even in the midst of a storm, I still can see that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And when I think about how many opportunities he's provided when I couldn't get out, and when I thought I wasn't going to get out, and yet he opened the windows of heaven and made a way out for me. And is there anybody in here today who can testify? I'm ready to shout about who God is, and nobody has to pull it out of me. Because when I think about how much he's been so good to me, how he's provided for me, how he made a way for me, how he kept me, how he touched my wounded body, how he gave me strength, how he lifted me up when I was down when I think about how good God has been even when I wasn't good even when I had gone astray even when I had rejected God his grace kept on providing and his mercy kept on giving and his love kept on encouraging and that's why every morning I can get up and say morning by morning new mercies I see all that I need God's hand has provided for me not only is great is his faithfulness but I see myself as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley all because my lover tells me how much he loves me God tells me how much he appreciates me God assures me how important I am to him when you know that you are the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley don't nobody have to tell you to stand up and give God some glory don't nobody have to tell you to lift up your hands and thank God don't nobody have to tell you to give God the praise it's already on the inside of you. In fact, I said I wasn't going to tell nobody, but I start thinking about how good he's been, and I couldn't keep it to myself. Watch the woman in the text. Chapter 2 says she's celebrating because she's gotten compliments. Compliments from the man who loves her and I'm celebrating the day because God gives us compliments every single day. But she's also celebrating because the lover in her mind also has given her companionship. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that God never leaves me nor forsakes me, but it's always providing companionship every single day. In fact, not just every day, but all through the course of the day. Even when I'm sleeping at night, he's still providing companionship because the writer of the proverb of the psalm says he neither sleeps nor slumber. And if God is looking over me while I am sleeping, that means that God still is providing companionship. But have you noticed that God manages to show up and to be close and to let us know how close he is every single time when life becomes traumatic? When something happens to which it pushes me into a state of fear? Remember when Jesus had sent the disciples ahead in the ship and when they got out into the sea, they noticed that there was someone coming toward them walking on water and Jesus in his movement came to them and Peter said, in fact, they thought that it was a ghost. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come out there where you are. But before that, Jesus says, do not fear. 
it is I. In other words, God has a way of even when fear has gripped us to a point where it's beginning to get the best of us, God reassures us that he is right there. And when we think that he's not there, he's always still there, providing in perhaps a very strange manner into which we can't recognize it's the hand of God. And yet God is there providing the companionship. In fact, God's companionship can be so intimate that we can go through a storm and wonder why we're not crying or that our minds have not been lost in the storm. Or we can be going through one of the most difficult times in our life and wonder why we don't look like that. We ought to really be happy and shouting this morning because uh, the way that I look may not really reflect how I'm feeling on the inside. But I can't help it because I still look good and it's only because I look good because of God's provision by his grace that keeps me even in the midst of the storm. His companionship. Hey, here it is, here it is. When you know that you have a good lover on your side, his companionship won't let mad even in the midst of a sad situation. His companionship causes me to even find joy when it looks like a joyless moment. His companionship encourages me to make sure that I allow my head to be lifted and I allow his spirit to speak through me because his companionship is so intimate that he won't let me fall along the line all by myself. She's excited because he comforts her. He comes to her rescue. He came to her rescue. Whenever the world was darkened all around her, look at chapter one, he gave light by his compliments and gave comfort to her. How many of us we're looking for comfort in all of the wrong places. And when we finally were introduced to who God was, we had come to recognize that God truly is the one that provides comfort and brings light in the midst of all of our darkness. But she is crying out to us, worthy is the celebration of whom she loved because watch in verse 3, she in verse 1 has been delivered by his compliments. She's been delivered by his strength. She's been delivered by his companionship and delivered by his comfort. And that's enough to shout and worship God all by itself. I've been delivered I've been set free. Do you know how many people come into church, go in, and come out the same way they went in and have yet to embrace the deliverance that God has for them? And if there's anybody in here today that know that that's not your testimony, your testimony is when you came in, you gave it to the Lord and God delivered and gave you comfort and companionship and God gave you a compliment and she's celebrating because he delivered but also she is describing how excited she is to meet who he is. 
Watch the text. Look at verse 3, if you will. She's dreaming about who he is. Look at verse 3. It says, like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. Look at the other clause. I sit in his de de delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. She's dreaming. He's not there, but she's dreaming. She's dreaming about his protection. She's dreaming about his provision. Every now and then you all just sit and think about how God has protected you. How God has kept you. You know, we pray through many dangers, toils, and snares. You have already come. Well, let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about, let's rewind the tape and just reminisce for a moment how many dangerous moments you were aware and then even unaware that God's protective hand has brought you through. How many protective hands can celebrate this morning, this afternoon, how God in the surgery moment has brought you through a dangerous moment. All you know is you went out under anesthesia and it looks like five minutes later you woke back up and you woke back up in the recovery room and what could have been was not because God's protective hand watched over you. Or how about traveling up the dangerous highways and you've ran into some moments in which there's been some tragedy and you sort of think about, had I been 20 minutes earlier, but God's protective hand. Or how about whenever a storm comes through and it wipes out amazingly everyone on the street except you, God's protective Hand. Or how about, how about whenever they decide to downsize and everyone gets laid off and yet you are still employed, God's protective hand. She's, she's thinking about how protective she has been in his care, how she feels safe in his arm, but also his provision. Look at the clause B. She not only calls him protection by saying he's the finest tree in the orchard, but she also said she delights in his shade, his provision of shade, his not only protection, but provision of shade. To remember, it was the sun that bleached her skin, darkened her skin as it was back in verse 6. And she initially told him, don't look at me because I've been kissed by the sun. Now, she says, I'm celebrating in his shade, in, in his trees. The psalmist, I think in Psalm 91 or Psalm 92, I believe it is, says that God will hide you in the secret pavilions of his arms. Shade. God will protect, but God will shield. And, and I think when you think about God's shielding, how he has shielded us from some moments in which uh, we could have been damaged and injured, but yet he shielded us. There it is. She says, I'm excited because he's protected me and he has shielded me. But look what she says in verse 4. 
I'm dreaming about him because of his protection and provision, but let me describe how I excited I am to meet him. She's dreaming in her mind, but yet she's anticipating to meet him. Look at verse 4. He escorts me to the banquet hall. Actually, actually the translation of the word is he sends me, he meets me at the house of wine. Now that was interesting to me because <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Genesis, Bethel is called the house of bread. And here she says, he leads me to the house of wine. Now, I told him this morning, and I'll tell you, there's a sensual side to the text, and then there's a sacred side. I'm going to give you the sacred side because the sensual side, based off my observation of y'all, has been too deep for you, and you can't handle the sensuality of the text. Because for some reason, when we think about sensitive matters in terms of the text, we get strange feelings and get so holy that we don't think you should talk about sensual issues in a sacred space. So I said, let me move over to the sacred side and give y'all the religious definition of the text. And what she's really saying is, he leads me to a meeting place, and in leading me, says the text, he obviously has a love for me because he's leading me where he wants me to be. In other words, God leads us every day to the place of worship and celebration. We call it the, oh, he calls it the banquet hall, but we're going to call it the house of prayer where God meets us to infuse in us the power of his word. But watch this. One translation says, and above your head is a banner of love. And I got excited about this because this simply said God so loves us that he wants to publicly display the mark that he's put on us so that when people see us they can see God all in us I like that because again I go back to what I said before I don't look like what I've been through all because God's got a mark on me and it makes me look so good that people try to figure out how do you go through what you've gone through and it's nothing more than a mark of grace here and a mark of mercy there and a little sprinkle of love over here and some power over there because God marks his children and he puts a banner of love on top of them which says I am a survivor are there any survivors in the house today you know you survived because of grace you know you survived because God protected you you know you survived because God provided for you you know you survived because mercy kept you you know you provide you survived because God gave you everything you need there it is right there in the text. She says, not only do I delight in his, his shade, and not only do I find his taste to be that of delicious fruit, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Does he taste good to you? Does he taste good enough where you can tell? Isn't it something when you get on something that tastes good and somebody else is with you, you look at him and say, ooh, that's good. It's as if he's saying to us, when you taste the glory of God, look at somebody and say, ooh, that's good because you want to share with them how great and delightful the taste of God is. But look what she says. 
she says to her lover, strengthen me and refresh me. And that doesn't happen until she gets to the banquet hall. Have you noticed that when you come to worship on Sunday morning, you may have a burden on your back? You may have a sense of incompleteness and frustration. Your life may be overwhelmed with the trouble of the week. But when we enter into this space of worship and celebration, we are really crying out, Lord, strengthen me. I mean, have you ever really came in the church and you're almost as if you're here by yourself because you blocked out everybody else because you had a need to be in relation and you only wanted to talk directly to God and you were just crying out, Lord, strengthen me for I am weak. And God has strengthened. God has empowered. God has lifted up your head bowed down, your heart despondent, your spirit sore, and yet God has strengthened to give healing. But restore or refresh me, she says in the text. Refresh me because I am done. I am so tired of being sick and tired. And yet on the sensual side of the text, she says, refresh me because what you gave me before, I need it again. On the spiritual side, she says, in Paul's words of the thorn in the side and his desire to have that burden lifted, God says to him, tell you what, I'm not going to remove the burden, Paul. The thorn is going to stay there. But I will promise you this. Even with a thorn stuck in your side, my grace will be sufficient for you to keep moving even in the midst with a thorn in your side. See, the spiritual side of that text was <clears throat> some of us are still running the race with thorns in our sides. And that's all right because we're able to keep pushing on because of the sufficiency of God's grace. And by the grace being so sufficient, even with the uncomfortableness of the thorn in the side, I'm still able to do what I do for the kingdom. I'm still able to celebrate who God is. I'm still able to push forward in the name of Jesus, even when a thorn in my side. When Saul's son, Jonathan, was killed, Jonathan had a son by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, who was being attended to by his nurse because the Jerusalem was being invaded by a foreign power, she had to drag him everywhere they went because he couldn't walk. He walked by dragging his feet, thorn in the side. 
when David got word that there was an attack, David asked the question, where are the children of Jonathan? They're all killed except Mephibosheth. David said, bring him to me because I made a promise to his father, Jonathan, that I would always take care of his children. But here's the clincher. David said that Mephibosheth, even with his limp, will always have a place at my table. I don't know about you, but even with all of my thorns, and, and I'm, I'm just about done now. I came by to tell you, some of us got thorns that somebody else put in us. And then some of us got thorns that we've put into ourselves. And with all of the thorns that we have, thank goodness that God still affords me a place at his table. When he told Paul that his grace was sufficient, he was letting Paul know, even when you come to my table with deficiencies, you will always be sufficient in my eyes because I'll always supply everything that you need. And that in return said to me that when this woman recognized how wonderful and how providing her lover was, look what she says about him in verse six. She is so engaged in him that he takes his left hand and puts under my head and his right hand and puts around me. He loves me so that he promises to rock me in the cradle of his arms. So much so now that we sing, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I be? He not only takes, but he took all my enemies away. And then, can I help you testify? He let the sun shine through a cloudy day. And what did he do next? And then he rocks me, put his hand under my head, and put his other arm around me in the cradle of his arms. It's the child who's been disturbed by, let's just say, a collard in his inner being. And that child is frustrated and agonized. And there's something about when that child is picked up and placed in their mother's arms and rocked that there's a comfort that comes. So even when there's a colic in the stomach where it's uncomfortable, that child feels as if everything is going to be all right. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that he rocks me in the cradles of his arms to let me know that everything is going to be all right. He puts one hand under my head and puts the other hand around my beard. Remember, this is poetic information. The writer is trying to symbolically and metaphorically tell us how good the lover is to the love, and we got to see it as how good God is to those to whom God loves. And he places us in the safety of his arms. And then he puts a hedge of protection all around. And she says, let me describe how excited I am to see him in the banquet hall. And here's my question. How excited are you really to come to church? Amen. Amen. Ah, see, 
Yeah, see, see. She was excited about seeing her man because she wanted to experience physically what he had to give. You should be excited about seeing the man because when you see him, what he has to give will make you come back repeatedly over and over again. But you should be that way on your way. On your way. You just left the house on your way to worship. So I can enter into his courts with praise and thanksgiving because of what God's done for me. All right, y'all ain't working with me, so here's my final point. She wants the celebration to be delayed. Look at what she says in verse 7. Some translations she says, I adjure you. Others she says, promise me. Women of Jerusalem, that's how I know it's not an actual encounter. She's dreaming. And yet she opened her eyes now from the dream and says to everybody, whatever you do, don't wake me up until love is ready to do what she's going to do. There it is right there in the text. Look what it says. Do not awaken love until the time is right. Here's what she's saying. That celebration in my mind was so exciting. Whatever you do, don't interfere. Don't interrupt. Don't wake me up. I want to stay in the presence of God. I want to stay in the presence of my lover. I want to stay in contact repeatedly. I don't want to leave this space. Here it is. Peter, James, and John on Mount Transfiguration. Peter says, Lord, it is so good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles so that we can stay here in the presence of Moses and Elijah and the saints of past. And God says, no, we can't do that. We got to leave this place, but enjoy the moment while you can. When we come to worship, we want to enter into that space and celebrate don't interrupt. And God says we can stay here for a while, but there's a real world that needs to know how true my love is. And I put my mark on you so you can go back out and show the real world that there's a lover who will forever love and never stop loving. So I call this sermon Fanning the Flame. Because when you read chapter 1, and even when you read through chapter 2, it seems that two things is happening to me. One, both are bringing wood to their intimate fire. And two, when the fire is lit, both are fanning the flames so the fire don't go out. Amen. Translation, one reason why relationships and marriages struggle is because you don't bring any wood to the fire. You want something that you're not willing to bring something to make something happen. So people just think because they get Jesus that Jesus out of the heavens is going to make your marriage work. It's not going to work like that. I'm just here to tell you. You're going to have to work and part of working is making sure that you understand the other person so that you know everything about them and you know what makes their fire burn. And then once you learn it, 
you got a flame. But when you get the flame, you got to fan it so that the flame keeps spreading and it keeps burning. Can I make a critical observation? I just got a gut feeling that some of y'all can't shout right there because you ain't got no flame. You struggling. Oh, or is it because we're talking about a sensual moment in a sacred space? Go and get over it because I'm trying to help you out. If you listen to what I'm saying, bring some wood. Bring something to the fire. I'm done, but let me make this comment. You can keep your lofty standards up here. But you better make darn sure you're bringing something up here as well. Translation. So you got lofty standards. The question is, what are you bringing to the table to demand such lofty expectations? Uh, she doesn't act the way she should act or he doesn't do what he ought to do. Well, the question is, uh, how much wood are y'all burning? Um, the question is, how much fire do you have going? So, some people just stay where they are because they become accustomed to where they are. And they become accustomed to where they are because either, number one, they think they can't do any better, or number two, they are afraid to do better. And you stay where you are because you don't think you can do any better because you've been in that spot so long that you don't think anybody else would want you. Or you don't think that the person that you're with can make any change at all. And I'm just here to tell you, that's the reason why this story is so potent because what it's trying to tell us is people can be changed if you're willing to walk down the road of change with them. Remember, she's one who had uh, insecurities about herself. She's one that did not have a good perception of herself. And yet all Solomon did was start speaking the right words. He brought some wood to the fire. And he spoke the right words and changed this girl's mind to the point where she said, shoot, I'm the rose of Sharon and I'm the lily of the valley. But then some people stay where they are because they don't want to change. They are afraid that if this joker catch on fire and I don't catch on fire, or if this sister catch on fire and I don't catch on fire, somebody else may put wood in the fire. And I'm here to tell you, what you won't do Okay, I'm going to R&B on you. What you won't do for love, you got to be able to say, you've tried everything and you ain't going to give up. In your world when there's only you, your relationship 
And here's a great question. If you are a husband, are you willing to change or find out what your wife really desires? If you are a wife, are you willing to change or find out what your husband really desires? If you are single, are you willing to find out what that person not only desires, but are you willing to teach them what you desire? Here it is right here in verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to close with this word. I'm going to tell you why some people struggle. You've got to stop giving. Here's an analogy. This is just an analogy. And it's a low-class one. I have to admit that. But its point is pointedly made. Stop giving out the milk unless they're willing to buy the cow. See, that's a bad analogy, but it symbolically makes my point. Uh, because people will take what you're willing to give and yet have no value on you, no value at all. And so they've devalued you to nothing more than something they can extract from as opposed to having them to a space where they're willing to add unto you make a deposit and she's so excited because this man didn't extract or uh, should I say withdrew from her he made constant deposits and you know what happens Einstein's idea when you make deposits compounding interest you know what happens with compounding interest that means you get something special that you never look for in the first place Remember, I said it's sensual. I'm going to leave it right there. But then there's a sacred side. Because God gives us more than what we put into him. Let me say it again. God gives us more than what we put into him. What if God measured what we give and that in return would be the measurement to which he would give unto us? I'm packing up right now. I'm packing up right now. I'm calling it quits right now because I know there just could not be any equity at all. I wouldn't have anything in the kingdom. But graciously, graciously, he loved me so much that even when I don't give him all, he still gives back to me. Father, may somebody in this word this morning